Life Audio. Hey, Happy Rant listeners. A couple episodes ago, we made the significant announcement in the life of our podcast that this fall will be the end of our nearly 10-year run of podcasting together. This isn't the band breaking up over creative differences. This is simply landing the plane on what has been an awesome decade of fun podcasting that, as we've heard from many of you, has actually been impactful and encouraging and, and delightful to a lot of people, which far surpassed our initial expectations. But what I want to let you know about now is that we want to go out in style. So on Sunday, September 24th, we are going to do our final live show in Indianapolis on the eve of the Gospel Coalition Conference. So Sunday, September 24th, 7 p.m., Soma Church Midtown, a venue we've uh, done a live show at before. It's an awesome venue. They're wonderful hosts. If you go to thehappyrant.com and click on the live show at the top, you can get all the details. And that's also where you can purchase tickets. We have a $35 ticket, and then we have a $50 ticket that includes a custom T-shirt designed by Josh Byers of Visual Theology. He does all of our swag. He does all, all of our website. Awesome designer. It's going to be sweet. So again, go to thehappyrant.com, click on the live show, get the information, get your tickets there. We would love to celebrate the culmination of our podcast with you. So come on out to Indianapolis. Join us for that. It's going to be a blast. Now, a quick word about this episode. As you know, we do Patreon episodes, and but those are bonus episodes for people who donate monthly. Periodically, we grab some of the best of those and drop them into a single episode, and that's what you're about to hear. So three bonus Patreon episodes where we answer a single question for about 15 to 20 minutes, all combined into a single episode. It should be an awesome one. Enjoy. Hey, and welcome to the Happy Rant Patreon-only podcast. I am Ted Clark, joined as always in studio by my good friends, my partners in Patreon-only radio, Barnabas Piper and Ronald J. Martin. Boys, the setup here is quite simple. Pipe comes to the table with one intriguing question, which we vamp about for 10 to 12 minutes. Pipe, what do you got for us? Uh, this was a question that was posed to me. So at the time of this recording, um, I'm t- tomorrow I'm doing this pastoral cohort thing, presenting to them, which is, you know, we've talked at length about pastoral cohorts and and the whole thing there. But it's um, it has to do with preaching, and uh, I'm pretty I'm looking forward to it. But one of the things they do to sort of like sort of a warm up question, get to know the the presenter, is they pose the question. What is your worst preaching moment or like a preaching horror story? So I just wanted to pass that along to you guys, because partly because I was having trouble thinking of something and partly just because I'm intrigued to know. So uh, preaching, speaking, horror story from your experience. Interesting. Ready, go. Man, oh, man. That's Ron, tough. what's coming to mind for you? Gosh, you know what's so funny? This is I, I, I have a... I have a regular reoccurring dream that happens where in the dream um, <laughs> I have my I have my notes and all I'm trying to do is get up to the platform to preach and all it, it's just, and just for like an hour of this dream there's one obstacle after another and I never get up to the platform <laughs> and the whole time I'm panicked right I'm having yeah. satanic panic in the attic because yeah. like I can't seem to get up there to like do the thing that everybody's waiting for me to do. And I'm just Mm -hmm. feeling all kinds of pressure. And then what eventually happens is I get up there and my notes are blank. 
Oh. And then I got, <laughs> I got to just come up with it. Right. And then I wake up. Yeah. And then I wake up. Yeah. So wow. I, nothing like that has ever quite happened. Um, you know, during an actual, uh, during an actual sermon. I mean, I've said some dumb things that I was like, Oh, why did you say it like that? But nothing that like, catastrophic, you know, if I'm being honest, um, I don't know. Some people may have thought, you know, that was catastrophic. Right. But, um, <laughs> I, I they, think, would, they would have let you know, people are good about that. They maybe have let me know. I think, so my biggest fear in preaching, to be honest, man, is that I would be boring. Boredom is my, it's, I don't care about seeming, feeling smart or anything like that. Mm-hmm. To me, because I'm an Enneagram four, my big thing would be if, if I see somebody nodding off, I feel like I just failed. I feel like it's a total failure. So that's my biggest fear is like, oh man, that was so dry. So I, it's constantly like that kind of a thing. Like, don't be dry. Don't be boring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, have some life into it. Be passionate. Have some good stories. Um, so I don't know. That I guess that's I guess that's as best as I can come up with in the moment. But um, what about you, man? Dude, honestly, mine might be that live show we did in Dallas, where like it seemed to me that the room was like a mile and a half wide. You know what I mean? <laughs> It was like one of those panoramic photos that just keeps going and going and going, but it was like side to side lengthwise. And we probably had 150 people in that room. It felt like we had 12 and I, I, you had to like crane your neck to sort of see everybody on either side of the room. And I just, I remember getting up there, settling in for like the Q and a part right at the beginning and sort of panicking, like, oh my gosh, this room has no energy and no life. And this is going to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, in retrospect, I don't think it was a disaster, but that was definitely like a moment of, oh man. Uh, I this, can see that, man. This, this could go off the rails. It could be real dry. Um, yeah, I can see that. I think I may have felt that way too. I, I, I'm feeling this. This is like surfacing again for me. I think I, think I was there <laughs> with you on that. You know? Yeah, it, there, there's something about like, where the guy, like the, pro- the the promoter does that little intro and you come out of the wings and you have to walk by like 61 yards of empty seats before you hit like a person, <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, maybe, maybe this won't be the most electric room of all time. Maybe. Um, it yeah, might maybe. not be like Flash Boys. It might not be the most electric audience. Exactly. Just hang in there. Exactly. I'm sure I've got worse ones than that, but pipe what what comes to mind for you? Um, I I think for me it, it it has less to do with like I totally screwed up and more just I was utterly panicked. I was maybe a junior in college and I was I was co-leading uh, a high school missions trip to Armenia, in uh, which is a really cool country. Yeah, and and it was one of those like and and the missions pastor who was leading it is just one of these guys who's. He's like a, he's a professional short-term missions tripper and Uh and he, and he loves to spring things on people. So just for, Mm. he had been asked to preach at this church one Sunday and it's about an hour drive away and we're on the way there. And he just looks at me and goes, Oh, by the way, you're preaching. (laughs) And so I have, I have an, you know, 48 minutes of a van ride. You know, there's like 12 people in a 10 person van and to, to create a sermon off the top of my head. I don't remember yeah. what I preached from. I think it was James, which is a terrible, 
terrible choice. Why did he hate choice. you so much, Piper? <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the cruelest thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh, and he just like cackled, you know? Yeah. He was like, ah, it's good for you. I'm like, it's it's not good for them. It's not. It's you not, know, it's not it's good, good for anybody. I don't know if it's good for me. It's definitely not good for them. No, the, the only saving grace is that nobody in the church spoke English uh, very oh. well. And so I was preaching through an interpreter which means oh. that I, every time I say a sentence, I then have about that length of time to come up with my next sentence so yeah. I could sort of write it on the fly. There you go. And, uh, and it means that wow. you can preach for 10 minutes and it's a 20-minute sermon. Yeah. And so I don't know. And he said, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes. I think I probably like total was like 22 minutes, 11 of which were me talking. So it was just like sweating and miserable and drained afterwards. So that's the one that comes to mind in terms of feeling horrific. It was probably a terrible sermon. I don't remember. I just, I mean, I don't know too many 20, 21 year olds who preach good sermons, but um, that, yeah, that was the most sort of horrific experience that I can recall. Dude, there's a, there's a certain kind of like old salty dog, like missions guy. Yeah. Who is too like two seat of his pants by half but who revels in like that kind of moment. Like I'm going to, and some, sometimes they couch it in this sort of like, you know, Richard Rohr, like mysticism. Like I just got a word from the spirit that you need to preach today, but often it's just like, I'm riding around in a car and I haven't thought about it just yet, but now I'm thinking about it. So you do it. And yeah, uh, like I have, the, I actually have power and control over like a teenager and I'm going to use it. Gosh, exactly. Darn it. Exactly. <laughs> Finally, I have power over someone and I'm, I'm for sure using it um yeah that's wild dude well that just okay so that that struck me with something if i if mm-hmm. i can talk here for like one yeah. minute so i had the i had the most horrific thing happen to me so in my back in my youth group days and i was like i was like 19 so i was like one of the leaders in the youth group kind of a thing And it was a massive it was greg Laurie. it was the it, i went to greg Laurie's church it was a massive mm-hmm. fifteen thousand person mega complex church you know <laughs> And so they allowed me to like, this was back in the day when you like booked musical, like artists, bands mm-hmm. to come in and play your youth group. And I don't know if we do that anymore, but that's what we did back then. And um, so I, I think I only mega churches did that, baby. Only. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, cause we had the money, right? So, You're right. Um, so we booked this band and they literally told me I had never spoken in front of people a day in my life. And they literally mm-hmm. said, so you're going to get up there and give the altar call. This was that era. that Yeah. Event. And so, in other words, you have to go up and preach a message. And then it, it only has to be five minutes. It doesn't have to be long, but you you got to do it. And mm-hmm. I just went like, okay. And so, dude, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened to me, but like, I didn't prepare for anything. I yeah. didn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. And so it was my time to get up there after the band played. And I got up there, dude. And I'm not kidding. I, nothing would come out of my mouth. I was absolutely, <laughs> dude, it was blank. It was zip. It was nothing. And I sat there and I stared at, I dude. And these things were, these things were sizable, right? Yeah. We're talking hundreds of people. And like, I just stood there holding the mic staring and I went, Oh man. And I kept saying, Oh man, over and mm-hmm. over again. And nothing came out. And I eventually just prayed a really short, bad prayer and uh-huh. just, you know, <laughs> dismissed everybody. And That's literally great. like, I think, it's ironic what I do now for a living, but like it's, yeah. it was one of those things that I think, I think I still have bad dreams about it. Bad. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. That would do it. It was that traumatic, would... man. It was trauma. It was trauma. Yeah, it was trauma. You're the victim, baby. I am. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of mine. 
Yeah, go ahead. I have one more too. So you go first, Ted. Yeah, your mention of an altar call, baby, reminds me, and I've told this story on the program before probably, but like shortly after we moved down here, I got asked to speak at like a, a youth retreat that was sort of multiple churches in multiple towns coming together. And I was supposed to give this this talk to all these youth. And I gave the talk and went really well. But when she was booking me, the lady was like, do you want to do the altar call or do you want us to do the altar call? And I didn't know what an altar call was, per se. I thought it was just where you said, you know, like, um, if anybody wants to talk after, like, I'll, I'll be up here. I'll hang around. <laughs> I thought that was the altar call. Um, so I didn't know what I was doing, but I gave the talk and like the nonverbals were good. And, you know, all these little kids had been playing, I don't know, capture the flag or whatever all day and eating pizza. And they were, but the, but the eye contact was good and they were nodding their heads. And then I prayed to wrap it up. And then I was like, Hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to be around for a little while. If anybody wants to come up and like, like talk or whatever, like do an altar call with me. And I go to sit down and the lady kind of gives me like the side eye. She's like, what are you doing? And then she got up there and she started doing the patter and like the used car kind of thing of, you know, the real salesmanship of the thing, which I, which I had every, no idea every head part. bowed, every eye closed. Yeah. Nobody's every, watching. It's between you and the Lord. Yeah, it's between you and the Lord. And can we get can we get somebody to come up right now? You know, and I'm like, oh, that's how this works. You know, I could have never done it. Yeah, yeah. Um, So she was mad at me. Oh, for sure, dude. Because I mean, you just forced her in the moment to get up there and like do what you were supposed to do. That's crazy. Absolutely. Let me let me offer you some encouragement. You have told that story before, and it uh, it was profoundly shaping for me in terms of because I. Living in the same part of the country you do, I've been invited to speak at a couple of these sort of like multi-church youth things. Mm-hmm. And I've learned, I just tell them on the front end, I don't do altar calls. There you go. And, yeah. and if, they're, if they want to get into a conversation about why, I'm willing to do that. But mostly I'm just like, yeah, I'll close in prayer. Mm. <laughs> and, so, and somebody else, if, so, if, you, if that's how you want to roll, go yeah. for it. But one of the other youth pastors can get it. And so I've been at places that are like, cool, we don't like altar calls either. We're all on the same page. And some places where they, another youth pastor will get up and they'll they'll go through the whole thing. And I'm fine with that. But your uh, your hardship has been has been a blessing to me. Well, I'm, I'm yeah, listen, I'm grateful the Lord used it. You know, I mean, he'll he'll redeem those things. He'll make all things new, you know. And um, I'm I'm glad it's been helpful for you. By <laughs> yeah, my pain, my trauma, if you will. So yeah, I like I like learning from other people's pain instead of my own. It's much better. Exactly. Um, so Ronnie's story reminded me of of a similar time frame in life for me situation. So I was um I was probably seventeen or eighteen years old, and some of our youth group uh, went to a big conference in the Chicago area. It was actually hosted at Wheaton and, uh, it was a big evangelism conference. So there's probably 1800 teenagers there, 1200 teenagers, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty decent size. And then part, so they would, they would spend the first half of every day training you on apologetics, evangelism, et cetera. And then you would be dispersed out into the community to go share your faith, which is really funny in Wheaton. Cause it's just like, right. you know, it, trying to evangelize evangelicals like they they started this thing um yeah but anyway so we did that for like two or three days and and i was you know at that point i was pretty discouraged because my assumption was if i share the gospel somebody's supposed to come to know the lord and uh Mm -hmm. and nobody was yeah and then and then one you know one day i had a conversation with this kid who was probably two or three years younger than me 
and he decided he wanted to follow Jesus. No idea if that was if that was super genuine or not, but um, you know, prayed with him. Get back, tell my youth leader. You know, big big sort of celebration. My youth leader then proceeds to tell the main head guy because mm-hmm. they would have people come up and share what they saw the Lord doing that day during the big evening sort of chapel service or whatever they called it. <clears throat> so they asked me to get up there and uh, and share. And I did the exact opposite of what you did, Ronnie, which is I got up there, I shared, <laughs> and then I flipped into like exhorting the people there. And they had oh, they, wow. given me like 30 to 60 seconds. And at like two and a half minutes, the uh the main guy comes out i literally waved him off stage you know so no. like, i'm holding the mic in my left hand what i wave him off with my right hand and and uh. finish what i had to say and uh i have no idea That's again incredible. i don't know if it was any good but it was yeah. it was it was impassioned and yeah three times as long as it was supposed to be which is typical for anybody who's I did, probably wasn't as good as you remember it i'm not trying to be discouraged <laughs> Oh, I'm certain it wasn't because I didn't have anything written down and I was 17 years old, but I just, I remember my, I got back to, I got back to the seat and my youth pastor was like hurting laughing because I waved the guy off. That's incredible. (laughs) He's like, he's like, they tried to gong show you and you just wouldn't have it. Dude. And being that it was Wheaton in the, I don't know, the nineties, the guy was probably like Max Lucado or someone like really famous. (laughs) Yeah. He's probably gone on to pastor four mega churches since. And I don't even know. Exactly. I think right. It was, was R.C. Sproul, Piper. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> R.C. Sproul. I'm not done yet. You know, it was, a, get cl- your it was a classic, the classic yeah. Piper move. You know yeah. what? Well, I that's what they didn't say. realize. I'm like, I grew up ignoring John Piper. You think you think I'm going to listen to you? <laughs> exactly. This isn't hard at all. You're like, I've been waving off John Piper for 17 years. You know? <laughs> I got this. <laughs> Dude, that's hilarious, Dude. That's man. a great one. That's a classic. Um, good one to end on, boys. We've uh, we've done what we always do, which is do way better radio for our patrons than we've done for everybody else. And until next time. Hey, welcome to the happy rant, Patreon only podcast, a very special podcast for our very special listeners. Those who support us financially via Patreon. Uh, I'm Ted Cluck joined as always in studio by my good friend and my partner in Patreon radio, Barnabas Piper. And the setup here is quite simple. Piper comes to the table with one intriguing question, which we vamp about for 10 to 12 minutes. Pipe, what do you got? Yeah, I have a I have a question that was spurred on by uh, I have a kitchen cabinet full of insulated cups and water bottles. Uh-huh. And and it led me to think about, oh, that didn't exist in my house growing up. So the question is this. Yeah. What are things that are totally normal in our lifestyle today that we would have thought were absolutely absurd growing up oh that's good um i have one and it's related to your water bottle and insulated cup thing and i want to i want to hear you kind of riff on it after i say my thing i just had this conversation with my students using the water bottle as a means of self-expression this would have seemed ridiculous to us (laughs) in the 90s right or even in college yeah. Like no, nobody was looking at your water bottle and drawing inferences based on it. But now, and, and my students educated me on all this stuff. You can spend $60 on a water bottle, right? Um, oh, yeah. And that's a consumer purchase that says something about you. And that's before you start slapping the sticker on it that says abide in cursive writing or 
the ironic office character sticker or however else you choose to express yourself via yeah, your water some, some anime characters or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. And so I just think everything being a means of self-expression is a thing that would have struck us as utterly ridiculous when growing up. Well, can can I ask a slightly more fundamental, like backing up one step? Sure. In college, I remember people carrying Nalgene's. Yeah. Prior to college, I don't remember anyone carrying water anywhere. Like, I don't, yeah. like, my mom doesn't drink water to this day. I don't, yeah, neither do I my don't parents. Know how she, I mean, my mom is mid 70s. She's in fairly decent health. And uh, I don't know how she survives. Like, dehydration didn't exist when I was growing up, as far as I know. Yeah. yeah. Like, we didn't have air conditioning in our house. We yeah. would go to Georgia every summer. My grandparents' house didn't have air conditioning. Like, there was no, like, drink your water, you're going to get sick. And like I remember <laughs> when I would complain about a headache, my mom would say, drink a glass of water and lie down. Like that was, yeah. that yeah. was it. Yeah. When, so even just the carrying of like these 80 ounce self, like 80 ounce billboards <laughs> of hydration, where, where did that come from? All right. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. So water as a thing started when you were in college. So I graduated college in 1988 or 1998 rather. And I missed the Nalgene bottle thing by about five years. So the Nalgene bottle thing started in the early 2000s when you were in college. And I remember this because my, my brother-in-law was in college with you. He was a Whedon. And, you know, I, I started seeing people lashing like Nalgene bottles to their backpacks with like carabiners. So yeah, like those carabiners like, and now like it, it was it was like it became it became like staple gear for the college student. Staple gear for the college student. So yeah, like previously, no one cared about hydrating, but all of a sudden it became very important to drink lots of water or to at least like carry around lots of water like on your back, like you're in the Sahara Desert. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like, like Wheaton, we Illinois. Didn't have, we did not have running water at Wheaton, so you needed to carry it with you. There was no yeah. potable water in any buildings. Exactly. Really rough area. Wheaton, Illinois, basically like a third world country. I mean, you've got you've got millionaires and multimillionaires in Wheaton, so you've got a lot of diversity. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of a, a lot to overcome for a college student. you got to hydrate. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous. And it seems to me that, like, the water industry just manufactured a need for their product. You know what I mean? In that, yeah, prior to like 2002, nobody was thinking about this. And my question is, how did it start? How did, the, how did that industry go, you know what? We're going to make everybody under the age of 40 think that like they need to carry around a jug of water. Like what did it dovetail with that made it a thing? I don't know. Like I, it's a bit of a chicken or the egg question to me because it, it makes me wonder, you know, was it, it had to start with marketing and then you work yeah. backwards from there. And then there's all the, you know, now there's all the medical research about how hydration is, you know, good for the, it's good for every system in the body and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I medically, I think that's true. You, you know, sure. your body dies without water. That's, that's pretty basic. You die without water yeah. way before you die without food. Yeah. But but I, it, it had to be a marketer who came up with it first. And, and I, yeah, I, it just it just exploded because now now there are like there are status brands. I feel like Yeti 
Yeti oh. got in the game and like, yeah. co- you know, coolers and whatever became they're sort of like it's like it's <laughs> right. like rich redneck status symbol. Um, yeah, totally. You know, you, people put like Yeti stickers on the back of their Chevy Silverados and you're like, that's a that's an insulated cooler mug. Yeah. 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 Like, or, or or a tumbler. That's a Dude, weird it's thing. absolutely insane. Yeah. Yes. That like these companies have created a culture around a product that's so banal. And I used to think, I used to think it was crazy that Apple did this with computers, right? Like, so I used to think it was insane that people, you would drive by an occasional, I don't know, Subaru Outback or whatever, and they would have it like an Apple sticker on their bumper. And I'm like, right next to their coexist sticker. Right. Yeah, right next to coexist and, and, and all the standard ones. But like you, you, you looked at that and you went, that's literally your computer. That's a thing that you use to do work. And you're you're sort of building this culture around it, which is brilliant on one level, right? Like that's a that's a marketer's dream if you can do that. But like Yeti or Nalgene, that's gradations more ridiculous. Um, and maybe it's just because we grew up in an era where people weren't doing that. But I, I think I think there are a couple connections to be made. One is that the rise of sort of water bottle self-expression dovetailed with the start of coffee as a thing and the start really of social media as a thing. So social media created this environment where you're getting so much, you're getting so much more time and so many more reps, like expressing yourself. You have to have things to express yourself about. So like influencer culture, and if Nalgene is going to throw you 500 bucks to show you like drinking out of their bottle, like you're going to take it. So I, I think, I think that had something to do with it. And I think coffee starting as a thing made it so that people needed to hydrate or made it so that people could carry their coffees around in a Yeti tumbler that costs $50. That, that, that's a, about as good as I can do as far as connections. The social media thing, I think, was fuel on the fire, though, because the Nalgene thing started way before. So, like, social media was still probably five to ten years away from really taking off. Certainly the photo-based ones, the influencer-based ones. So, yeah, I don't know. That's one of the weird ones that I look back and I just go, if at 12, I would have walked into, like, you walk into a space and all of a sudden you just see, like, people in business suits carrying around (laughs) a 40-ounce double walled metal water bottle yeah i'd have been like oh these people have a medical condition yeah or they're all closet alcoholics and they're trying to sneak their liquor in or whatever like i don't know yes yeah no that's completely ridiculous and yet that's the world we live in you know um shoot dude i I had it i have another one i have another going in a different direction Mm -hmm. uh it is as a child I didn't know what protein was. Mm. Now, I still don't know what protein is, but I know that I need more of it than I'm getting. I know that it's the base of the diet. I know that every soccer mom is addicted to it. Yeah. I know that every fitness person swears by it. And I know that when you go to a restaurant, they don't say, would you like chicken or steak? They say, pick your protein. Yeah. Yeah. And where the blazes did protein (laughs) come from? Yeah. Okay. This is good. Um, I agree. Like calling, calling the menu item a protein is a really funny thing to me. 
And I think because you're in Nashville, you're seeing more of that than I am. It's sort of, it's sort of dovetailed with the rise of a thing that I'm going to talk about, which is, so last night, KK and I were kind of like doing a little misty eyed backward gazing about our life and our marriage, which is really fun. And I love when we do that, but we were, we were talking about restaurants that we ate at on our honeymoon. And we actually went to an Applebee's on our honeymoon. And it's, it's because of the following thing. Hipster dining didn't exist as a category. Yeah. We got married in 1996. Dude, there were no hipster restaurants. There were chain places and diners, and that was it. Um, so, like, if you wanted a sit-down meal in a mid-sized community, Applebee's was the best you could do. Um, and it's remarkable, dude. So, like, our kids' generation is growing up with, uh, I don't know, this environment where, you know, you you go to this place called Allergy and you spend $94 on a meal that's been crafted exactly for you. And that's like, that's what you expect. But like we were, we were going to non-hipster places because that's all there was. Um, Back to the protein thing a minute. I think it's fascinating. I remember growing up distinctly, no one caring about protein. Our moms were obsessed. My mom at least was obsessed with low fat. And so she would go to like Wendy's and eat like 10 billion grams of carbs. Like you could eat a baked potato and you could have like all the baked potatoes you wanted, which was like all these grams of carbs, which are the enemy now. But that back then it was like, Oh, we got to get some, some dry pasta and, and a potato. That's a good, healthy meal. Um, Cause it was low fat and now it's all protein. It's strange. Yeah, the the low fat. I mean, I've actually I've actually read about that because low fat was actually a marketing campaign by corn producers, like the like the, the the corn lobbyists. Yeah, because because the real culprit is sugar for for unhealth, yeah. and they wanted yeah. corn syrup and everything, and so they they basically red herringed the whole thing and were like, nope, low fat is the you know that's the healthy way. When in reality high fat foods aren't that bad for you. High sugar foods are, and, and carbs yeah. are fundamentally sugar. So yeah, yeah, it's that, that's a fascinating one just from a, from a historical standpoint. I just think it's fascinating. Like you look at any dietary recommendation on the amount of protein you should eat. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty moderate. Yeah. Like one protein bar that yeah. any soccer mom keeps in her enormous purse. Yeah. is like six times the daily recommended amount of protein. Yeah. And they eat like three of them a day plus like grilled tilapia and whatever else because they need <laughs> exactly. lean protein. And yeah. uh, and I'm like, man, this, it's I'm, I don't know. I think it's I think it's attached to like kidney and liver failure. I think we're all going to die of that stuff in, in 30 years. It's going to be like yeah. it's going to be like lung cancer in the 70s. I think you're right. I actually I remember when I was playing college football, like talking to a doctor about that and you know, when, when, when you're a football player, you remember this, you're always trying to get bigger and stronger and put on more muscle. And I was like, man, do I need to, do I need to get a protein supplement? You know, do I need one of these powders that like, you know, delivers a hundred more grams of protein. And he was basically like, look, the average American gets way more protein in their diet. And this was 1995 or whatever. He was like, the average American gets way more protein than they need. You're just going to piss the rest of it out anyway. Like, 
you'd be wasting your money. Um, it would be money literally down the drain. And <laughs> I always kind of remembered that, um, especially as protein has become sort of the darling of the kind of like hipster health industry. Um, we're just peeing it all out anyway. Um, <laughs> just sad, but funny. Oh, I just, um, I, it's such a, it's such an apt conclusion to the whole process though. It and really yeah, is. We're, we're just flushing that right down the drain. I know it. I know it. I love it. And pipe, that's an apt ending to this Patreon. Um, in part because I have to go, unfortunately, but, um, Piper, we've done what we always do on this Patreon only podcast and that we've wandered to and fro throughout a topic that may have been better than our original topic, but, uh, I enjoyed it. Always enjoy the chats. And uh, until next time. Hey, welcome to the Happy Rant Patreon-only podcast, a very special podcast for our very special listeners, those who support us financially via Patreon. I am Ted Cluck, joined as always by my good friend and my partner in Patreon radio, Barnabas Piper. And the setup here is quite simple. Pipe comes to the table with one intriguing thought or question which we then will vamp about for 10 to 12 minutes. Pipe, what do you got? Uh, my question is, I'm thinking about how to phrase it, but it's uh, it, it boils down to this. When did parents become so enamored with memory making for their kids? <laughs> yeah, um, that's good. It's, it's, really, it's really good. I don't know. Like I've been, so I've been consuming a lot of 80s media, either media that was made in the 80s or media like Stranger Things, which sort of homages the 80s. And it didn't seem to me that parents were that enamored with making memories for their kids back then. Or just with their kids at all. Correct. Yeah. So like there was a sense of, in the 80s, there was a sense of like, you go, you go create your own fun. Right. And maybe that means, you know, getting the mower out and like carving a baseball diamond into the field behind your house or, you know, riding your bike to Hook's drugstore and getting paint and like making a football field or whatever. And like you sort of had these little projects as a kid where you made your own fun. And I have good memories with my parents, too, but they they typically aren't like curated memory making events. Like my best memories of my parents aren't like, I don't know, the the amusement park trips we took, although those were fun, but it's, it's typically just like more tender, sweet kind of off camera stuff that they would do. Um, but yeah, our generation seems obsessed with it. Why is that? Yeah, I, I, I have a couple of theories on it. What? Yeah, I, I have, I was struck by the same thing recently when I, I th- just think back on how, how we were raised and I, I posted a joke on social media and it was apparently a little too meta for, for some people. And I just said, I said, it's a miracle that anybody who's age 35 and up has any fond memories of childhood since our parents weren't devoted to giving them to us. Mm. And uh, and of course, there's people who are like, well, I mean, my parents were and others who were like, I don't understand. Is this a joke? Uh, yes. Jokes yeah. are the most funny when you get to explain them. Oh, but, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I don't I don't think my parents were trying to give me a a library or a bank or a treasure chest of memories. I think they were just like, I don't know, parenting just. Yeah. And and the thing is, and, and like you said, the things that I have the fondest memories of 
are stuff that was more like rhythm of life stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. So my dad would take 30 minutes or an hour after dinner most nights of the week to play with us when we were little. So yeah, if the weather stunk, it might be like wrestling in the living room or like playing with action figures or or yeah. uh, whatever. And then when the weather was nice, and for my mother's sake, it was usually in the backyard kicking a soccer ball or throwing a football or yeah. hitting ground balls or, or whatever. Yeah, And I, I have really fond memories of that or like being at my grandparents' place for a month in the summer and fishing. So like I have a bank of memories and it was just like my mm-hmm. dad being dad or my mom yeah. being mom, you know, road trips where she wanted to stop and read every historical plaque. <laughs> yes. Which is boring as all get out as a kid, but also a really yes. fond memory now. Yeah. Oh man, that's so good. That's and, my and wife. So, She's yeah, a big and, plaque reader. It, you know, and, and I'm, yeah. I'm become, I'm a lot more like that now than I was, you know, yeah. 20 years ago. And, uh, and I, my theory is two things. One, there was the positive shift. I would say maybe seven to 10 years ago where a lot of parenting resources started to talk about how it's more valuable to give your kids experiences than material stuff. It was kind of the, mm-hmm. the anti-boomer shift, yeah. um, you know, getting your kids all the toys is not going to make them happy, giving them experiences. And I think right. categorically, that's that's probably true, because what you're really saying sure. is, um, you know, relate to your kids. Yeah. Give them what that has turned into, though. That's the positive shift. What that's turned into, though, is the negative, which is we've now created a commodity called memories. And so people are still being materialistic or, yeah. compar- you know, comparison driven. Yeah. But trying to give their kids experiences. Well, that's so interesting. And I see that I see that every day with college students. You know, their their form of competition now is memories and experiences. And you know, be real has sort of to me magnified this in the sense that like their be real will go off in my classroom and it's like sort of hurry up and curate the shot that makes this look fun or epic or whatever. And I'm like, it's a, it's a November class. Like there's nothing fun or epic about this, you know, but, um, but they are competitive on that level and they, they feel very competitive about like what they do over summer, you know, because you've got the kid similar to what we were talking about on the main show. You've got the kid who will like, bloviate about all the amazing experiences that he's had over the summer and his impressive internship or whatever. And it makes it so that like, if you just worked as a lifeguard at the pool, your summer sounds like garbage by comparison. And so I think our generation, our age group is really competitive about that stuff in the same ways. But for us, it's more like what experiences have you given your kids and what, like how impressive are your kids? You know, that's that's sort of the battleground on which we compete. Um, and the kids are doing it on the battleground of like, how impressive is my life? How impressive is like, yeah. my treasure chest of experiences versus my classmates or whatever? And it's it's all profoundly sad, right? When, and it's it's very social media driven because that's mm-hmm. that is the, the like you talk about be real, but it's it's the public curated portrayal of whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so you even see it like, all the photos and videos and whatever of kids opening presents on Christmas morning, like the presents aren't the thing. It's the, it's the storytelling underneath, you know, 
my kids woke me up so early and I was so exhausted, but I was so happy to see their shining faces. And I'm like, I yeah. wasn't. Yeah. I was pissed. They woke me up before I am. Yes. I, yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, so, so there's even the, like the curated presentation of stuff that people have been doing for years, except now we're calling them experiences or whatever. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, like, yeah, I mean, Christmas morning or 4th of July or whatever, like that, those are, those are kind of optimal times where, where things could be memory, you know, maker type of situations. Yeah. But the competitiveness, the curation, everything has really changed it. It feels a little bit like, um, you know, in like the, the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, people bought nice things. Then mm. with the rise of, um, uh, Pinterest and a bunch of stuff. People wanted to DIY everything, you know. So you yeah. got Etsy is DIY art, and right. Pinterest is DIY home decoration, and put up your own, mm -hmm. you know, barn wood and whatever else. Right. This feels like DIY parenting in the sense of like we're gonna we're gonna brand something that's just the same thing that's been going on for years, except that now we're gonna make you self conscious and put a price on it. Yeah. No, you're right. That's fascinating and. There's sort of nothing more fascinating. I mean, it's actually boring, but it's fascinating on a psychological level than seeing someone our age prepare for their kid's high school graduation, right? Because there's always a slideshow involved somewhere. And it's this exercise of going through thousands of pictures that you haven't looked at. And you're all of a sudden looking at them, but you're looking at them through the lens of like, what is this going to deliver to the audience who's like half paying attention to this slideshow? And it's fascinating. I, I had a bunch of friends who had kids graduate from high, high school this year. So I got to see mm -hmm. their, their different approaches to this. And it was really interesting. And, and one of my best friends here, so he has twin daughters and we, we hang out with that family quite a bit. So we, we know the girls quite well. And we went to their graduation and after their graduation, the the lobby of this church that it was in was like a like a mob scene. You know, there were just all these people milling around and like there were the girls were trying to take pictures with people that were meaningful to them. And they were they were kind of taking pictures with everybody. And, it, you know, there were there were people who had known them for like five minutes who were like muscling in there to get a picture taken. And I turned to my wife and I was like. Let's just go in part because I, you know, a high school graduation is not something I want to make last any longer than it needs to be. But I, I was also like, like, this isn't going to mean anything to them. Like what's more meaningful to those girls is like, I don't know, the inside joke that we always share during church or whatever. Like the, the guy that does the funny thing, the church that always yes. makes us like raise our eyebrows and laugh a little bit, you know, like that's the more meaningful thing. Yeah. And like so, someday you're going to cross paths with them when they're like 31 and you yeah. are, you know, nearing retirement and you're going to chit chat. So good to see you. How's life been? Hey, you remember that one guy who always like he did yeah. that weird thing in church and you'll just bust up again. Yeah. And you know what you won't do? Pull out photos of a high school graduation. Right. Yeah. No, I know. And But like there's so much motivation in that moment, it seems like to like take the picture. And we could do a whole app, dude. We could do a whole hour on like people's relationships with pictures. I find it fascinating. And, you know, kind of having 
having my first kid right at the end of like analog hard copy media versus having my second kid squarely in like the digital age. Like even our family approach to pictures has changed. I don't know. I'd, I'd be really interested to talk to you guys about it. So put that one in the idea bank. And we'll, yeah, I'm writing we'll it down right now. Pull it out for a rainy day. Um, yeah. I, go ahead. One, one other thought on this. Uh, hold on. I'm typing in people's relationship with pictures because this is good radio. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the thing that I'm curious about is, you know, every generation resents something about the generation that raised them and also, mm. you know, probably appreciate something, you know, the value system. Yeah. I want to know where that dividing line is going to be with our kids. Mm. And, you know, so, so Gen Z and whatever's behind Gen Z, Gen double Z, mm-hmm. you know, this, these, these curated memory made kids, what, what is it that they're going to get to 35, 40 years old and go, I wish my parents had done more of this. Mm. I wish my parents had done less of this. I wish they had not made such a big deal out of this, or I'm really grateful they made such a big deal out of this because I, it, it's, it's, it's an intangible, like it wasn't intangible to be like, you don't need to buy your kid every new Barbie doll or GI Joe. Mm. You, you can't buy their affection. You can just right. tell people that. Yeah. It's really hard to tell somebody you don't need to take so many pictures. Right. You know, you don't need to try to remember this. You don't need to try to create memories. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I kind of think we need to tell people like, hey, ease up on the memory making. Like memories yeah. happen. Just yeah. just love your kids and and laugh a lot. Like do those things yeah. and I'd be fine. Yeah. No, that's good, man. That's so good. And and it's very human of us to want an easy thing. Right. So like if there's some predetermined schematic for like how to make a memory, I think we're always going to tend toward that because it feels easier. But what the kid really wants and what we really want is the kind of closeness that comes from really knowing and enjoying someone. Right. And there's, there's gospel stuff wrapped up in that on the level of if I've forgiven somebody or if I've been forgiven by somebody that relationship is richer and deeper, you know, because we've been through something together and there's, there's some more trust there that's built up and, you know, it's even better if I enjoy that person. Right. So if I get to laugh with that person on a regular basis or like enjoy a shared experience, like that's what we're chasing. But all these industries are sort of trying to package it for us so that it looks easy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The, well, and just aside from that, there's the simple fact that we don't get to pick what our kids remember. Yeah, that's you know, really like, good. It, I, rem- like, I remember fondly, really fondly, just innocuous things that my parents did that they weren't trying to do anything other than just like, this is a parenting moment. So like, yeah, I, I remember my dad teaching me how to fry an egg. Mm. Okay. Like, that's I still do that. Cool. I still fry yeah. eggs. Yeah. Why? I'm sure he doesn't remember me learning that. Right. That wasn't a memory making moment, but it could have been if somebody had pulled out the camera and snapped a shot and been like such a fun morning, uh, making breakfast with my kids, just want to pause and reflect on the joy of being a dad. Right. Okay. Now now you just ruined what was otherwise like five minutes of just innocuous parenting 
that means right. something to me now, you know, 36 years later or whatever. Well, because in that moment, if he had done that, he would have been making it about him. Yes. And you you would have known that. Like, even if you were 12 or nine or whatever, you would have had an inherent sense of he's already a little famous. This is going to go on his Facebook. This is intended to make him look like a certain kind of sweet dad. And it's gross. Like, just let the moment happen. Um, And yet, like, I don't know. There there are myriad pastors doing this now in 2023 where it's like, I'm teaching my kid how to chop wood or, I don't know, like field dress a deer or fry an egg or throw a football or whatever. And it, it immediately goes on Instagram as like this, leverageable i'm a good guy moment and gosh dang i hate that dude when and i mean we do it with our churches too you know Mm -hmm. it i will post about our church periodically and and the thing that that i always want to do in that moment is not make it about me but rather Mm -hmm. like um who is the person being honored so you know if we are commissioning Mm -hmm. someone to plant a church like this isn't about me yeah this is about this person and the group of people going with them to do this this remarkable thing, or there's a pastor who's stepping out of ministry to move into another area, you know, of, 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 of of ministry. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I want to honor him, not me. Mm -hmm. So express my gratitude for him. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's where these things get twisted. I think so much is that the memory making becomes performative. How am Mm -hmm. I doing Mm -hmm. rather than how are they doing (laughs) the person we're, we're doing this for the people we're doing this on behalf of. Yeah, I I think to your original question, life was just so much more private back then, you yes. know, and, and there were good and bad things about that, to be sure. But like, I don't know if if one of my kind of enduring sweet memories of my mom is like, and I was an only child, so she could do this, but just like running around town paying bills with her, like we would drive to like four different places and she'd like run a check inside of a building. <laughs> yeah. Like it, the, the, the water utilities, the electric utilities, yeah, the, like yeah. Wells Fargo for whatever else. And yeah. But that was like the opposite of a public moment. And it, it, it would, it would sound like lunacy to someone in the eighties. If you were to say, gosh, that's really sweet. You really ought to photograph this and put it on Facebook or Instagram <laughs> or whatever. Like it would have, it would have sounded like insanity to someone back then. But, but yes, so many things in life were like that. Like we're just, we're having a workout or we're paying bills or whatever. I used to do all kinds of like cool workout stuff with my dad, man. I loved it. Like we, he had this truck that eventually became my truck, but he would just like put it in neutral and like sit in it and I would push it up and down the street. (laughs) And it was like, man, that was awesome. And there's a small part of me just for myself that wishes I had video of that um, just because it was fun and awesome. And I was really strong back then. And I'd like to remember it, but on the other hand, it's almost sweeter because it was private. Um, and it, and because it existed in a certain time and place, but now, you know, if you were any kind of like high school football prospect or whatever, that would immediately go on your, your Instagram or your Twitter or whatever and, and be leveraged and, I just don't like that thing. Yeah, it it really, I mean, we turn everything into an asset, a resource, or a commodity. Mm. That's that's what I've, that's, that's kind so of what true. I've, what I've begun to realize. You know, we were talking about, we were talking about boredom in our main episode. 
And, and part of what is boring is when people treat other people like resources yes. instead of like fully formed human beings. And, we, and so, which is functionally what we're doing with our kids when mm. we are memory making, because we're treating them like customers mm-hmm. and customers are a resource, right? We need to maintain our customer base. We need to satisfy our customer base. We need to, you mm-hmm. know, maybe depending on where we're at, we need to build our customer base. Yeah. Instead of just like, I'm responsible for the whole human development of this person. So I want to provide for that. And so right. it's it's the commodification of all this stuff that that just rips the soul out of it. It's true mm-hmm. in church and friendship and parenting and just about everything. And yeah. uh yeah, that's that's where like the memory making thing has become soulless to me. Right. Um w- when it when it tilts into that. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think we're I think we're tiptoeing up to maybe the end of this era a little little bit in that I'm starting, you know, just cautionary articles about social media and studies and, you know, that stuff used to be the purview of like, you used to have to go to like academic journals to find it, but, but now yeah. you're seeing it in, in mainstream places. And, and so I don't know, I, I think, and this is dark, but our generation is going to look back on the way we raised our kids and just be addled with guilt about what we allowed them to be exposed to at certain ages, but yeah. that's a whole nother um, podcast episode, I think. <laughs> what will we regret? I think we might've done that one, but we're, we're yeah. past the point of remembering because we're men of a certain age. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Pipe, this was fun, man. And uh, yeah, really fascinating stuff to think about. And we got some ideas for the main show. So that was good too. Uh, Pipe, we've done what we always do on this Patreon only broadcast. And until next time. We want to take a moment to thank the team at Life Audio for partnering with us on this podcast. Be sure to go to lifeaudio.com and take a look at the other podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. It's a crazy world out there, moms and dads. I'm Katherine Seegers, host of Christian Parent Crazy World, the podcast that tackles tough topics to help you be a godly parent in an ungodly world. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.